Hello, this is Stephanie Dandler. This is the Storybound Podcast. Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. Welcome to season two. We're excited to be back and we hope you're doing well. This first episode, you'll get to hear from Stephanie Dandler. She'll be reading from her newest memoir, Stray, accompanied by an original musical score by Naomi LaViolette. Thank you for tuning in. And now for the show. Long Beach, California. The children who stayed at daycare until dark had stories to tell, but not the voices to tell them. It was a Catholic school, so divorces weren't as common as the national statistics of the 1980s reported, and those of us coming from broken homes were acutely aware of how different we were. Most of the other moms didn't work, The staff handled all of us who stayed until dinner time gently. A car door would slam and I would lose focus on whatever I was drawing or painting or gluing, my entire body a satellite searching for her high heels on the asphalt. She would appear in the doorway, nothing like the other moms with their smudged faces and skewed ponytails, sweats, minivans, packed lunch sets. Her legs shimmered in her nylons, which she shed like snakeskin when we landed back home. She hemmed her skirts an extra inch, because I'm short, she informed me, but my legs are long. Those legs appeared then the rest of her in silk skirts, blazers, camisoles, or button-down blouses. Then the eyes, bright, my eyes, she would say while considering my own and her youth wafting off her like Chanel number five. She never looked tired to me, but I can see it now how her posture had wilted by the day's end, how she still had to feed us and bathe us, read to us, sing to us, sleep with us. She never intended on being a single mother of two by the time she was 29, or a barely glorified secretary to a judge, clerking her way through a thoughtless and uninspired 40-hour work week. But when she arrived at daycare in her professional regalia, other left-behind children stared at her, jealous. I already knew she was fragile. I don't know many single mothers who are able to hide their pain from their children. There isn't enough space crying while she balanced the checkbook, panic attacks while driving us, crying on the phone with her mother, or berating our absent father on his answering machine. One night she fell chasing him out of the house. She twisted her ankle. He didn't come back. She sat on the lawn crying and my sister and I ran to her. And I remember my fear I remember exactly how she tried to get back up quickly, 
she gripped her ankle and sat down on the lawn, defeated, curling into herself to weep. Shortly thereafter, I went through a phase where I practiced calling 911, hanging up when I heard the passive voice. When my mother and aunt asked me to explain my actions, I said, when you don't have a father and you have a baby sister, you have to be in charge when your mom falls down. After your dad left, my aunt remembers, you wouldn't let her go to the mailbox alone. It's gross in total, the way I can feel the tug of my love for her, my protectiveness, her skirt hems, her Chanel purses, the cigarettes and hairspray, clutching at her, shrieking for her if she disappeared for even a moment, running to her when she came into any room, done pretending that I was strong, independent, or cared about anything else. I know what it's like to be claimed by the most beautiful woman in the world. She was mine. My father told me they met as undergraduates at the foreign kids' table during lunch at Loyola Marymount University. My mother was fluent in French and Italian. My father fluent in nothing. I can't quite piece together what they were doing at that specific table. Were they loners? Were they trying to escape the South Bay where they grew up? There is, unfortunately, another likelier story. My aunt says they met at my mother's boyfriend's apartment in Manhattan Beach. My mother's boyfriend being a very well-established Coke dealer in Los Angeles in the 70s. The last I heard of that boyfriend, my aunt recalls, he was serving a 20-year sentence. The apartment, I imagine, had views of the ocean, mirrored surfaces that made cocaine shine, a terrace where my mother could smoke and stare at the horizon, which is what I imagine she's doing that day when my father comes out for some air. Tall, dark, and handsome. The two of them brushed powder from their noses, ran tongues over gums, introduced themselves, chattered in a fast-forwarded, intimate way. What did you love about him? I asked my mother when I was a teenager, wondering if I had missed some central story that would make their animosity toward each other logical. Beyond a transaction related to one of his visitations, I never saw them spend more than five minutes in a room together. He was handsome, she said, edged. He didn't age well. That's it, really? My mother sighed. He gave me you girls. Isn't that enough? What did you love about her? I asked my father. That was when we were living together and I had gotten to know him somewhat, how intolerant he could be of women. I couldn't imagine him being able to stand her. I was young, he said and cleared his throat. <clears throat> I remember there was a lot of pressure. That's not an answer about her, I said. She was a good mother. Was she? When you were little he says. 
My parents locked me out of whatever feeling provoked them to choose each other. Their passion and pillow talk and how they imagined their future, things I hope exist, or else the entire enterprise is too sad. I used to scour photographs of them for clues, wanting them to make sense beyond the well-mannered expectations of marriage. They traveled together. My mother studied in Rome, my father at Oxford, where he once told me when he was fucked up, he had gotten a girl pregnant and had to skedaddle when she wouldn't get an abortion. Here are my parents in Paris, Milan, London, rural Italy, visiting our relatives, sipping cups of grappa. Here's my mother on her honeymoon in Santa Barbara, her blonde hair dyed dark, looking Italian at finally standing next to the plaque with her new last name hung on their cabin. She's tan and smug. I did that for your father, she said when I showed her the photograph. He loved my hair dark. The minute I kicked him out, I went back to blonde. This was when Christina and I were teenagers and she took us to Rome. Her voice was softer, more voluptuous because we were traveling. We were about to tour the Pantheon when my mother paused and pointed up to a hotel. It was a pensione on a noisy street. The front had potted flowers gone brown and twisted in winter. When I lived here, she told us, I was in a dorm, but when your father came to visit me, we stayed in this hotel. It was very adult and 15 lira a night. One time I wanted to surprise him, make my hair dark. I bought a box of dye at the drugstore, but apparently didn't let it set completely. We got into the bath and it started to run, turned the water brown. I was so embarrassed. Then it came out all over the sheets. That's all I know. They stayed in cheap European hotels. She loved him enough to dye her blonde hair brown. They took baths together and her hair leaked. They stained sheets. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. Long Beach, California. It's always 10 degrees cooler down here. My aunt is fond of saying when I arrive in her corner of Los Angeles, stunned by the weather. That's why the taxes are so outrageous. She lives in Naples, a cluster of three tiny islands surrounded by Venetian canals in the Alamitos Bay. It was designed in the early 20th century, marketed as a dreamland of Southern California. The water in the canals is disgusting. 
but gondolas and crooning gondoliers make their way through the waterways and people stroll with glasses of wine in the evening, tend to roses with gardening gloves. You should come over, she says, take the kayak out. But I'm not visiting my aunt today and I haven't been in a kayaking mood lately. Instead, I'm sitting in the car my grandfather loaned me. He's 90 and could still drive if he wanted to. He just doesn't want to. Parked on my mother's street in Belmont Shore, a bit away from the canals and their grace. I'm looking at my eyes, her eyes, in the rearview mirror. I wonder how I fell back into this so quickly. I've let my defenses down, no potential advantage to be won by this vulnerability. Being on her street in the middle of the day is unmistakably a mistake. In the rearview mirror, I've accidentally aged from girl to woman, my looks over-leveraged by the amount I've depended on them to protect me. Every line in my face, every sunspot, a reminder of what I have to pay back. I'm the age she was when she picked us up from daycare. Every mirror or window brings me back to her in the way she used to look. Here we are. People tell me stories about their own narcissistic or kooky mothers and then sigh, but you only have one mother. I've thought about that a lot in the years I've been gone, that she is my one mother, mine to call monthly or mine to ignore. During those years away, I sometimes thought there might be space for more, that hurting each other cannot be the sum total of what we mean to each other. Maybe I can start something with her now that I'm back, be the kind of daughter who visits her mother once a week. I can take her to the movies, or the nail salon. It will be like a friendship or something. Or I could leave. Of course I could leave. I'm 31 years old. 10 years since my mother had a brain aneurysm that left her mentally and physically handicapped. Four years since she started living with a technically homeless man she met at Alcoholics Anonymous and less than a year since her last sojourn in rehab. 16 years since I stopped living under her roof after our relationship became abusive and unsustainable. 16 years since she sent me to live with my father who was for all intents and purposes a stranger. 16 years since I told her that if she sent me away, I would never come back. That turned out not to be true as I moved home in 2005 after her aneurysm to be her nurse for a summer. I hope you didn't move home to make peace with your mother, my aunt says often. You don't owe her anything after what she did to you. While I appreciate the sentiment, I always find the statement oddly and willfully blind. My aunt is forgetting or ignoring my bid to live with her when my mother and I fell apart. How I begged not to be sent to my father in Colorado. How I tried to be good when they had me over. I babysat my cousin who was then a little girl in a bid to prove my virtuous influence. 
does my aunt really not remember when she said no? Occasionally, if we spend enough time together and she's softened, I think she remembers it. She'll put the words into her husband's mouth. Gary says his greatest regret is turning you away. That approximates her own regret without her having to own it. Your mother wouldn't allow it, she says, and your grandmother forbade it. It was your grandmother. Again, this all strikes me as curious. My aunt has never really taken orders from anyone. I think she was afraid of me. I know now that a family is a delicate equilibrium. I was not so delicate at 16. And in the contest between believing her sister and believing her adolescent niece, she chose her sister. That seems fair to me. But still, she feels the need to absolve me from the imagined guilt I must carry from being away for so long. My aunt is skilled at making the world into black and white. She has an old world flair for absolutes, which made her a great lawyer. Right and wrong. Debt and credit. My mother deserves punishment. I do not owe her forgiveness, etc. I tell myself that what I owe my mother and what she owes me stopped mattering a long time ago. In order to want something from her, I would have to believe she was still my mother. When anyone asks, my sister and I say our mother's short-term memory is gone, but that's not exactly true. If I arrive and ask her what she ate for breakfast, she can tell me. Coffee, she would say, suspicious. Always a defensive woman, even before, as she says, I got a hole in my head. If I asked her the last time we spoke, or how long ago her aneurysm was, I'd get a sloppy guess. Last week? A few months? Four years ago? Her long-term memory is selectively intact, depending on the day, but one gets the feeling that she uses it for whatever slim advantage she can garner. She remembers the name of the street she lived on in Rome when she studied abroad in college. Via Latanzio, near the Vatican, but doesn't remember, she claims, the turbulence of my adolescence. It takes her a long time to assimilate new information, especially if presented from afar and inconsistently. Our few phone conversations haven't been full of questions, but statements that my mother tests out. In person now, it's the same. She adds a hesitation at the end and waits to see how her audience responds. I do a lot of nodding, but I do more correcting. You're married, she begins. I'm not. You're not married to Brad. I'm not married to Brad anymore. You live in New York. I do not anymore. Your sister lives in New York. She does. You live in, she stares at me, straining, Brooklyn. 
I did live in Brooklyn. I live here now, kind of. Kind of, she repeats. I'm trying it out. You live in Long Beach? I live in LA, in Laurel Canyon. You live with... I live alone. This loop will repeat itself at least once before I leave. To be fair to her, I didn't tell her about my divorce for a while. There's never any rush to give her information because I spend years confirming and revising her statements. The same thing happened when I got married in the first place, a year of repetition over the phone. But at least in that instance, the news was good. She could clap her hands together and walk away from the phone, feeling proud of herself. This news was distasteful. Her brows knit in frustration, trying to remember what happened to me, though it is beyond her to simply ask. You work at the wine store, she says. No, I wrote a book. It'll come out next year. Oh, that's right, that's right. You're a writer. She pauses. And now you're... I'm writing another book. Oh, I see. She does not, in fact, see. There is no recognition that my writing a book is an extraordinary occurrence, no memory of graduate school, the accomplishments, scholarships, sacrifice it took to afford said school. No surprise I'm being published, nor recognition that I've essentially won the motherfucking lottery. It's the same to her as if I still worked at the wine store I started at when I was 23. I'm quite numb in this house in which I have no memories, this tiny house we moved her to when we realized there was no money or hope of money. To visit with her, I make myself microscopic. I'm hidden away in a recess of my body, my shoulder, my rib, and I don't think things that will hurt me. I'm a charming blank, and if I can stay that way, I'll drive away from her in one piece. I do this because I imagine that I bring some variation to her colorless days, or that she feels my absence as a punishment, and I do not want to punish her. I guess I imagine sometimes that she loves me, and that being around a beloved is universally agreed upon as beneficial. Right? I don't know. I can't look directly at her. Her physical devolution in the years I've been gone makes me heartsick. I end up looking at her things. The porcelain spaniel figurines on the mantle, her cookbooks, the sun-faded spines of my childhood. British histories and art histories and Shakespeare. Everything tattered, as if water and wind had wrecked the house, a tangible storm mirroring the psychic storms made of white wine and rage. Her tea kettle dented and caked in dust. 
There's a small bedside dresser in the living room with a locked top drawer, the key of which was always hidden in different spots around the house. Inside was her jewelry. She doesn't wear it anymore, but I'm reminded that all the women in my family are absurdly attached to our rings. I don't look at how frail she is. Her clothes, picked up at Ross or Lohman's, ill-fitting and off-colored to begin with, won't stay on her hips or shoulders. The skin on her arms hangs translucently off her. I don't look at the bruises from where she's fallen or the way her dyed hair has grown out, half of it black and gray, and then a strong line where the bottom turns brittle and blonde. If I encountered her on the street, my aunt says, I would cross the street. I don't look at her browning teeth, the gums receded from years of smoking, the front tooth knocked sideways from falling while drinking, or the right side of her face, which is sloped so that one corner of her mouth is frowning, the implications of that slope something I cannot handle. And I don't look at her eyes, my eyes, which have sunk into the crepe-crinkled, sun-spotted skin of an ancient woman. I see other 60-year-old women, parents of friends, and my mother looks like she could be their mother. And I definitely, definitely do not inhale because between her breath, her unwashed, weepy-eyed, obese dog, the cloying, cleaning product-laced ammonia scent of alcoholics and shut-ins, all I can smell, if I were to allow myself to, is death. But what hurts the most, if I had feelings anymore, which I assure you I do not, is not remembering her from my childhood or even before the aneurysm when she had a flattering amount of Botox and worked out enough to comfortably wear a bikini at 46 years old. My legs are long, she always said. It's that after her aneurysm, it appeared that she would get better. That summer of 2005, when I moved in with her to nurse her, I would hold her hand and repeat what the doctors had said. You're a miracle. And that is always what I'm hoping for, isn't it? Something akin to a miracle? instead of a dulled impasse wherein I want things to be different and am distraught because they can't be. She's staring out the window, silent. I look back at the books. There's nothing awkward between us now. No pressure to say anything, to entertain each other, to arrive at any intimacy. It's a conversation with no structure beyond our script and no momentum beyond manners. She's huddled into a corner on the couch and hasn't moved since I arrived. She can't get up, I realize. I had let myself in. I had leaned down to hug her. Her boyfriend, who takes care of the house, lives off her small savings and keeps her up to her eyeballs and booze, placed her there before he left. He will return when he sees that my car is no longer parked on the street. I realized I wanted to go on a walk with her. Maybe that was the reason I drove down here in the middle of the week. 
that writing about my father, thinking about the two of them, is hurting me, and a walk with my mother would prove that time can mend hurts. I'll ask her to get up, ask her to sit in the backyard. I'll get her walker. She'll make an excuse for why she wants to remain on the couch. I won't accept the excuse. She'll refuse me. I'll have caught her, and then what? If I push, she'll do what my sister and I call play brain dead. She's doing it now, disappearing at will, suddenly deaf-blind mute. I know in my bones that she hasn't left this house for a long, long time. I don't owe her anything, I remind myself. She breaks the silence. You have a boyfriend? Kind of. Well, that's good, she says. It's good to have a boyfriend. I want to laugh, but I nod. This story was an excerpt written and performed by Stephanie Dandler from her newest memoir, Stray, published through Penguin Random House and available wherever you choose to buy your books. The musical score for this episode was composed and performed by Naomi LaViolette. You can look up on Spotify or just Google Naomi LaViolette. Also, make sure you check out the original comic for this episode, which is drawn by Shane Milner. You can find the comic available on our Instagram and our Twitter pages. Just search for the handle at StoryBoundPod. We would also like to thank Emily Reardon at Knopf for her scheduling assistance. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer, with assistant mixing provided by Tim Carplus. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. Thank you to Modestus Mancus for this outro sample. Want to tell us what you think of the show? Well, you should find us on Twitter at StoryBoundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes will be released every Tuesday, and next week you should hear a story from Tommy Orange. One more thing, I just really wanted to say a sincere thank you to everyone who listened to us all of season one, all of you who wrote us messages, emails, asking for a season two, giving us your suggestions and thoughts. Uh, you are really the ones who are helping us make the show and keeping it fresh and interesting. And we have some really cool writers this season. I'm very excited to show you what we've done. Uh, and it means a lot to me, especially in this time. There's a lot of, there's a lot of turmoil out in the world and we hope you're staying safe and we hope you're being good to yourself and please do what you can to think of your loved ones and, uh, and, 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 Please be kind to yourself. That's really the best we can ask for. Again, thank you so much. The show does not exist exist without you. And we will see you next week. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.